0: Hi, right, everybody Welcome friends. Hello. Hi. Everybody. How's everybody? Good. How are you? Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Living the dream, I'm good. Let's pray. Got a lot to cover. Next year I'm I think we're finally gonna go back or make the move to two hours because it's just too short. Anyway, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus, calm our hearts and our minds. Uh, free us from distractions. Uh, bless those here tonight. Bless those at home. Uh, today we, uh, pray for our country. We pray for uh, your will to be done in our country. Uh, bless our time. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 The Holy Spirit. Um, you know we haven't done in a long time is, Patrick, You you me the Q&A box? We haven't taken anything with that in a while. Because of you guys. <laughs> it's your fault. We're going to sweep up tonight on justification. There's a few last points we need to clean up from last week. And then we are going to move on to the next major section of our class, which is on sacraments. Sacraments. Um, So pretty exciting. Is there anything in there? Yeah. All right. There's one. Two questions. Okay, I think we already answered. There's two questions on this. If God can't be observed by science, how can we prove God is real? We've talked a lot about that, um, but there are plenty of things you can't prove by science. Science rests... On a philosophical theory, uh, you call it realism. You could call it um, empiricism. Um, by the way, uh, looks like we need another chair. Do you want know chairs, right? Oh, I think mine's getting a chair. Okay, somebody's getting one. Okay, good. Um, so remember the Matrix this is probably the easiest way to understand this. Um, remember the Matrix, like if you were in the Matrix, if you were loaded into the Matrix. How would you know? You can't. The Matrix is basically a movie that's made out of Descartes' philosophy. Descartes, right, who's a famous Catholic philosopher, his famous, does anybody know his famous line? Bam. I think, therefore I am. Descartes, as a part of his philosophy, he's looking for. Um, the the branch of, of philosophy that has to do with how do we know things is called epistemology. And Descartes is wrestling for how do we know that, and one of the questions he asks is he says, what if there was like a demon out there that was super powerful, way more than you, and had deceived you, and said everything you thought you knew was actually a lie? How would you know? And it's a lot like The Matrix in that movie. How do you know you're in The Matrix? Well, you wouldn't. There's ultimately not really a way to disprove that. Um, And so, but Descartes looking for a way of, how do I find a a basic starting point? And his starting point is, I think, therefore I am, which he's actually building on Augustine. When Augustine's dealing with what are called skeptics. Skeptic is someone who's like, You all know what a skeptic is, right? You meet someone and no matter what you say, they're like (laughs) looking for a way to say, oh, that's not true. Augustine in his day, when he's talking to skeptics, he makes a similar move where he says, if I'm wrong, then it's me who's wrong. And then at least I know that it's me. And you can start from there and you can start to build kind of a system of knowledge. The modern scientific method is is built on Aristotle and the Christian West. Which is that our, and it assumes, you can't prove it, the modern scientific method assumes that our senses are reliable to some degree. Otherwise, you could never have the scientific method. Because it's right, the scientific method, by definition, is based on observable phenomena. And you test that and you can test against weaknesses, but at the end of the day, you have to assume that somehow the, the universe is sensible. It's able to be perceived through our senses. That is not a scientific proposition. That's a philosophical proposition. Um, so, okay, there's more to that. If the person who wrote this wants to talk more to me about that, please do. How do we know the private uh, revelation of Abraham is true versus... Joseph Smith. I heard that Trevor got this question and he kind of struggled a little bit. How do you because he's a total loser. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> um, which was um, why are the Ten Commandments different than what was to the world? Yeah, did we talk about this last time? Just well, regardless, let's just hit it really quick. So there's two points on this. There's a very big point. The Christians, our starting point, Pope Benedict has a wonderful book on this called In the Beginning. And it's actually a group of sermons that he wrote in Germany. And when you read this book, you're like, people in Germany must be super intelligent because the level of like the sermon, like people in my community say Lord's people are very well educated, which is true. And I have friends who are like, you could never give the sermons Larkin gives a Lord's to my parish. Um, Pope Benedict's sermons, I'm like, who in the H-E double hockey sticks is he preaching to? I'm like, you have to have a doctorate in <laughs> philosophy to understand this. Um what are we oh <laughs> what he says in one of his sermons is he talks about how the starting point for Christians is not Genesis. It's not Abraham, it's not Moses. It's Jesus. And right, it matters to us in a massive way that Jesus' life is public. It's historically verifiable to at least a certain degree. This isn't somebody, right? If you go into your room and you say, "I had Father Brian. I was in my room. God told me X, Y, or Z." There's no way for me to know if that's true or false. Jesus, right? You can't know everything. There does faith is a real thing, but this is a public, historical event. Um, so what's the difference between that and Moses or Abraham? So the church really sees Jesus as its foundation. And it works. And what we would say is that his light shines forward. It also shines backwards. And so we actually really believe in the Old Testament, not because we looked at it and said, wow, the Old Testament makes sense. We believe in the Old Testament because we believe in Jesus. That's why we believe in the Old Testament. So, he is our starting point, not Moses. So, what's the difference, with the Ten Commandments versus Joseph Smith? Um, there's two things. The first thing is, as I, I think I did say this last week, but let's do it again. Um, there's an aspect, at least, of public revelation with Moses. It's not totally, but <clears throat> this isn't just one person, the entire nation of Israel at that time sees what's happening. They arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. God descends with fire on Mount Sinai. There's a lot of visible public phenomenon, but that's a much lesser point. The much more important point is what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians 3. It's what Ezekiel prophesies, are you impressed yet in Ezekiel 36:25 and Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31:31. It said the Ten Commandments are written on the human heart. And I said this to Patrick the other day, We hang out a lot. But, like, no one's going to go to heaven or, like, die and go before God. No one will die and go before God and go to judgment. No one's going to walk in front of God and say, Holy crap! I wasn't supposed to commit adultery? How was I supposed to know that? That's a Jewish thing. No one will say that. the the most staunch atheists on planet earth the Buddhist, the Hindu the Jew the Christian the Muslim Paul tells us in Romans 2 that the the commandments of God are written on the human heart and by the way this is part of the reason why let's do this real quick this is kind of a fun tangent ever wonder why we keep some Old Testament laws and not others this means yes this means no I just stare um, okay at this point in the class by the way I'm, I'm man we're at feisty time I'm like worked up we're going to be feisty for the rest of our class we know each other enough I expect you to talk okay so um, there's a big question of why do Christians keep some laws and not others Paul addresses this question in Galatians chapter 3 and here's his answer so if you read the Old Testament here's what happens so we're going to talk about this more in depth tonight. So the Ten Commandments—the first time they appear in the Bible—is in Exodus chapter twenty. Okay. And in Exodus twenty, the Ten Commandments are the first thing that come. Okay. And again, right, like what the Bible is going to say is that. This is eternally valid. The Ten Commandments are forever. As My, mo- my mother has a magnet on her fridge. She's watching at home. Love you, Mom. Um, my mom has a magnet that says the Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. Right? Amen. Um, so you get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then you get some basic ceremonial law. Basically, like, here's some of the stuff that's associated with worship of God. All the stuff, when we think of the Old Testament, you only think of Old Testament law, and you're like, you're like, okay, like, don't eat this type of animal. Don't shave your beard. Blah, 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 blah. None of that is there. And what happens is, you have this, And then there's a very big event, and let's see all of my good Protestants. What happens in Exodus 32? That was a little too quick. (laughs) I was hoping you would get it wrong. Okay, that's right, golden calf. So in Exodus 32 is the golden calf. And here's how this all comes together. I freaking love this. Um, In Exodus 32, is a golden calf, and what's the first commandment? I love it when you mumble. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cute. What is it? Right, you you, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before me. Right? No strange gods. So in Exodus 32, they break the first commandment. And the rabbis in the time of Christ and following, they refer to Exodus 32 as the second fall. And so here's what St. Here's what Paul says. When Paul is, is answering this question, like, how come you and I can eat pork? And if I wanted to shave my beard, which is a really bad idea, I've tried it a couple times, and every time I'm like, it's a really bad idea. Um, it's kind of like when Patrick grows his mustache. Gross. Um, so we can do those things. Jews couldn't. Why is that? Why, why is that? Here's what St. Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, the law was our babysitter. Greek word, I won't write it up. Greek word is pedagogos. It's where we get the word pedagogy, if anybody's a teacher. Um, That's the Greek word for it, but essentially it means babysitter. And here's the point. Remember when you were in high school, and your mom and dad were like, Luke, we trust you. You're a good kid. You have our trust. Mom and dad love you. Mom and dad go on a road trip, and Luke throws a raging party. <laughs> Did that ever happen? No. It's a good kid. Whatever. Confess <laughs> your sins. <laughs> yeah. But what happened, you can imagine, right? So Luke throws a raging party. Mom and dad come home, and they're like, what is this big red stain behind the carpet? Oh. Right? And like, what's going on here? And what happens, right, so if you break the law, what do your parents do? More law. More law more law. And so what happens is you lose trust and your parents say, until such a time that we think you're trustworthy, you are going to be a total nerd and you will have no friends. Maybe not that harsh. Mom and dad never gave me any rules. Love you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was a good kid, like Luke. Um, So what happens, most of the laws that we think of as very strange a lot of them, at least, come from what's called the book of Deuteronomy. I spelled that Deuteronomy. Which is a Greek title that's given to, to that book. Um, and what, it's very easy to see what this means. My eraser on here. <clears throat> so in Greek, the word for law is nomos, or nomos. That's the word for law. Any guesses what deutero means? Deutero means second. So it happens, that happens after the golden calf. And this is why Christians, there's three types of laws that God gives to the Jews in the Old Testament. There's moral, ceremonial, ceremonial, and judicial. Three types of laws. And here's what happens Is it interspersed in all three of these? Is it before the golden calf? There's very few laws. It's like when Luke's parents trusted him. There's very few laws. Saint Augustine says Saint Augustine says, "Love, and do what you will." The problem is, is like you you can see a teenager being like, "Mom, Dad, I love, so I can do whatever I will," right? Which isn't what he's saying. So what happens is, God has these types of laws, and when Jesus comes into the New Testament. What he starts doing and what gets him in trouble with the Jewish authorities is he starts breaking laws. And what St. Paul says and what the Catholic Church teaches is that the reason Jesus does this is because some laws were never meant to be permanent. So my parents never gave me a curfew again, thank you, Mom and Dad. The seminary did. I used to laugh at that when I was I'm like 28 and I was leading high school Bible studies, and my guys are like, they're super into it, and it's like we're going late. We're talking about the scriptures, and they're like 16, and I'm like, guys, I gotta go. I gotta be home for curfew. You know, I'm like, see you next time. It was awesome. Um, here's so if you had a 10 o'clock curfew, here's my question for you: Is 10? Is it evil to be out past 10 o'clock at night? No, is that evil? There's nothing wrong about 10 o'clock at night. Is it wise for a 16-year-old to be out past 10 o'clock at night? That is St. Paul's answer to this question. And so the Ten Commandments, and this is going back all the way to that question in the box, some laws are eternal. But the Jewish laws, and Ezekiel, God says that he actually gave... Laws, he actually uses the language that the laws were bad. And the church reads that in the sense of they weren't meant to be permanent. They were meant for a time until you come to maturity. And so that's why we no longer observe some of the old testament laws, but we do observe others. Isn't that so cool? Love that. Okay, any other questions before we mop up? Yeah. Don't smirk at me. He, what? You gave me a smirk. I did give you a smirk. I know. So I was the one that asked Trevor that question. Okay, love it. And um, so, because my question was Moses came down, he was so healed, he broke the tablets. Yep. Okay, no proof of that happened. Yep. But you're saying because Jesus is the proof, and Jesus references the Ten Commandments, and therefore we kind of forget that Moses. So so everything's built on a foundation. So so let me ask this. So like, um, let's use a less controversial one. Um, This is kind of interesting. Well, do I want to go there? Um, Einstein. I was listening to the radio this week, and they were saying that Einstein's theory of relativity has been disproved. Which I was like, that's interesting. Um, And it was some astrophysicist or something, I don't know. And I was like, you know, no idea. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but here, here's the thing, is that all of our knowledge, almost all of our knowledge, not all of it, but a lot of our knowledge is based on authority. It's based on that. Authority. Okay. So I don't really know that, um, I don't know, I can't think of it, like any, basically any like really deep, like deep scientific truth. I don't know that it's true. I trust an authority in that area, and what happens is we can't know all things as human beings. Do I really know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492? There's no way I can know that. What I do is my my knowledge of that it's not totally blind. It's there's there's checks on it, but it's based on some kind of authority. So what Christians are saying with Moses is that. Jesus is the ultimate foundation of all knowledge about God. We can't know about God without him. It's not somebody who's really smart. And that's my point with Einstein. Aquinas says this. St. Thomas Aquinas says, um, he says the reason God had to reveal himself is because even the smartest people among us, the best of us, the most brilliant person you will ever meet, will certainly be wrong. And in most things, that's okay But in terms of what we needed for our eternal salvation, it was necessary that God revealed himself. So it was on a more sure foundation. The church then looked at Jesus as the foundation of knowledge. But my point is this. So Chesterton says that the reason he's a Christian is like a key fitting a lock. Is he says we can test things, right? Like if, if I said, well, I believe Jesus is God and Jesus affirms Moses, and Moses taught the only way to go to heaven is to sacrifice 300 chickens and spin around 18 times, that wouldn't make sense. But Chesterton says, when the key fits the lock, there's something there. And I love that, right? So, like, and that's, I think that's the point of like saying that the revelation that happened with Moses in Mount Sinai. It's not just blind faith. It's not just, yeah, I guess I've got to spin around 18 times and then sacrifice 300 chickens. It's it, it affirms everything you know in your heart. Worship something bigger than yourself, right? Don't. There are things that are sacred, like the name of God. Don't blaspheme, right? Like, and and the worship of God on the Sabbath is tied to this. Honor your father and mother do not kill, right? These are, these are things where, like, my entire... Um, and these are deep questions, but one last thing I would say on this. Truth, one of the hardest questions in all of philosophy is how do you know something's true? Right? And, um, again, in philosophy, that's called epistemology, the theory of knowledge. And for Christians, and not just Christians, but for what are called Aristotelians, which, again, the question on the card was about science, any science, anyone who's from science, has an Aristotelian view of truth. Otherwise, they're not a scientist. You can't be a scientist if you don't believe that. So, what what Aristotle believes, and what the Western civilization has always believed, is that knowledge is, sometimes referred to as the correspondence theory of truth. And what it means is if I, if there's a tree out there, went to our class today. Um, if there's a tree out there and I'm over here and I, and I see the tree and in my mind there's an image of the tree, Western civilization has said that what truth is is a correspondence between these two things. The image in my mind Matches what is real. And so, going all the way back, trying to wrap this up, um, what the church wants to say is you do have to have faith, and there's something about when I see Jesus Christ crucified, something in my entire human life, everything I have been created for says, I am created to love. Um, I am created for a purpose bigger than myself. There is more than this life, blah, 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 blah. And when I look at a cross, I see it right there. And in a certain sense, it's not the same thing, but there's a there's a certain parallel. The key fits the lock, right? And so, with Moses, right? Like, first of all, the primary reason I think that Moses had this revelation um, is because everything within me says Jesus is God. It speaks to my mind, it speaks to my heart, it speaks to my experience. It's backed up by the greatest like the greatest saints in history, right? You see like a mother Teresa, it doesn't mean that she's right. But Chesterton again, I'm on a roll side. Chesterton says that a person doesn't really believe when one thing makes sense. A person believes when everything makes sense only because of this one thing. And that's that's all I can say is my life as a priest is it Everything makes sense because of this. It's the reason why Mother Teresa's life speaks to us more than Bill Gates. One of my favorite books starts that way. There's a New York Times article in like 2000 that says, if we were honest, we should think that Bill Gates is a much greater lover of mankind than Mother Teresa because he's done way more for, mother, for, for mankind. He's helped eliminate malaria, blah, 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 blah. And like, that's great. And those are really good things. He did not lose his life for love of the poor. He, to this day, he's done great things. I have great admiration for Bill Gates. I disagree with him on certain things. He didn't lose his life for poor people dying in a gutter. And something inside of me says there's something true about this, and the key fits the lock. So, okay. No more questions. that's <laughs> <laughs> right. Did that somewhat answer it? My, my long diatribe. <laughs> okay. You ready to move on? We got a lot to cover. Yeah. All right. That was really enthusiastic. One person's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, last week I want to mop up with justification. And I remembered, I told you all something you were supposed to remind me of. Do you remember what it was? Covenantal gnomism. Covenantal gnomism, exactly. So we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about that really quick, and then we're going to jump to sacraments. So how are you saved? So here is the Catholic answer. So the the way this usually goes, last week we talked about the shooting of the Bible verses, right? And so if you're from an evangelical background, you're like, Romans 10.9, and I'm like, "Uh, Luke 10.16, right? And they're like, "Um, well, Romans 3.27, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll take this James 2. And you kind of just fire back and forth. And where it usually goes is um, people from a Protestant background will say, if you have faith, then it necessarily leads to good works. It's where it almost always goes. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with a Protestant where it didn't end up going here. And at the end of the day, what they say is they say, well, yeah, I know the Bible. They're like, okay, Father Brian, you just quoted Matthew 25, or or Matthew 19, the rich young man. If you would inherit life, obey the commandments. And what they end up saying is they're saying, well, what Jesus is really saying there is have faith, because if you have faith, you're naturally going to produce good works. Has anybody ever made that argument? Yes. Lots of people have. This is the common Protestant understanding these days. If you have faith, you have good works. Here's here's my problem with this. You, You do not allow the Bible to speak. What's happened in this situation is people have decided ahead of time that the only answer that is permissible is faith alone. And they will do their damnedest to make the Bible say what Luther said and I can show you a hundred verses one of my favorites is Galatians 5 and we're going to talk tonight about 1 Corinthians 10 which is the same thing 1 Corinthians 6 which was our reading this past Sunday at Mass says the exact same thing they're talking to Christians and there's a warning where Paul says if you don't do this you cannot inherit the kingdom of God which doesn't that just make sense to us? You have to live a good life. You have to surrender yourself totally. Okay, so my first problem is that if you come from an evangelical background, you've already decided that this is the answer. And by the way, you know what that's called? It's called tradition. Which Protestants are supposedly against. But it's called tradition. Tradition. It's Luther said this, his followers said that, they went down all the way until my pastor and my parents told me this. And so this must be true. That is what is called tradition. Tradition, the Greek word is peridonomi, the Latin word is tradere, which is where we get tradition. And it simply means to hand on. The reason the overwhelming majority of Protestants believe in faith alone is because it was handed on to them by a tradition. Okay, but the real problem is you're gonna force the Bible to say that. So in Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, a ton of other places. In Revelation, right, we're told by Jesus that when the when people are judged, they are ju- a book is opened and they are judged by their works. Romans chapter 2 says the exact same thing. Here's here's and here's the final rub of it. Um, I'm totally gonna lose my train of thought here. Where was I going with this? Um Oh, covenantal gnomism. What you do matters. We all know it. And if if works are automatic, there's no reason for St. Paul to warn you constantly that if you don't live a good life, you will go to hell. If faith automatically produces works, all the Bible should ever talk about is faith. Because that's all you need. If you have faith, you will produce good works. So why ever warn against, right? And Galatians 5 was on the sheet last week. Galatians 5 has the fruits of the spirit and the works of the flesh. And Paul walks through as he does other places. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, which by the way is common sense. All of us have it written on our heart, it goes back to the Moses question, that, and this is why Catholics naturally have hope for non-Christians because even if they don't know Jesus the law is written on their heart and if they're obeying that law we don't know they go to heaven we don't know that and the church does not teach that but the church withholds judgment and that just resonates with me as in last week we talked about this I don't know. I'm not God. I will never say that I know if if someone's in hell. Right? I just don't know. If someone says, hey, do you know if this person's in hell? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not God. I have a very hard time believing Gandhi's there. I'm not God, but if I think of an eternity, an eternity of everlasting suffering, very hard sell for me. Uh, so why does Paul, if, if all you need is faith, why does the Bible on every page of the New Testament, every single page of the New Testament, tells you you have to live life a certain way? doesn't make sense. Um, finally, and then we'll get to uh, the covenantal gnomism. The word pistis is the word for faith in the New Testament. And this is the, this is the real kicker. If you want to get really intellectual about this, um, the word pistis is a word for faith in the New Testament. Last week I showed you a book that I told you should, you should never read because it's, I don't mean to be condescending. If you get a theology degree, then you should read it. But otherwise, it's, it's just it's extremely dense. But Richard Hayes, his dissertation is called The Faith of Jesus Christ. And here's why. The word pistis means faith, but it equally means faithfulness faithfulness so that can mean faith or it can mean faithfulness and there's literally no way to tell except by trying to understand the context and guess what faithfulness is by Luther's definition it's the W It's a work. And what Catholics would say, and I do think that the Protestants are oftentimes trying to get to this, is that these things are connected. You can't really separate them out. Faith, and this is what James says in James chapter 2, you can't just say you believe in God and you believe in Jesus and just live for yourself. You can't do it. And so the word faith in and of itself contains an idea that there's something on you and this is what, what Luther was worried about. It can't be dependent on me. Well guess what? You can never do it without God, but part of it is dependent on you. Okay. Let's say one more thing and then I'll take questions. Because this is this is where it's really gonna make sense to you. Do I overpromise a lot? Mm-hmm. This means yes. <laughs> this means no. <laughs> or you can just stare at it. Okay, here's what covenantal gnomism means. Um, covenantal gnomism, sorry, so what is gnomism? What, is what does that word mean? The law, right? Gnomos is law in Greek. Modern scripture scholars, there is a massive movement of, of uh, scripture scholars, the top ones in the world right now, who understand it this way. There are still some who don't. But this has been the, the overwhelming movement has been in this direction. And it makes a lot of people uncomfortable because it's very Catholic. Here's what Covenantal Nomism says. It says that to come if if this box, if this is the covenant, and this is related to salvation. Salvation is about being a member of a family. If that's the covenant, what covenantal gnomism says is it says to get into the covenant has nothing to do with law or works. Which is why the Catholic Church baptizes infants. You can't do anything to be a part of the family. God loved you before he created the world. He died for you. He didn't love you because you are really cool and smart or because you helped a poor person. He doesn't love you because of that. He's always loved you and he always will. But once you're in the covenant, there's a boundary. So you can't do anything to earn God's love. Luther's right about that. By the way, Catholics have always taught this. You can't do anything to earn God's love. God loved you. It's just like when you meet um, people who are pregnant, parents, love their children from the moment they're conceived. At least from the moment they know they've been conceived. It's very similar. When you guys have kids, those of you who haven't, or those of you who have, when you have kids, right, you don't love your kids because they obey. You just love your kids. Does that mean they don't have to live a certain way? Of course not. This is what uh, Deuteronomy 28 to 30 says. This is Psalm 1. This is everywhere. And modern scripture scholars have come to this. And here's the kicker. And this will throw us into sacraments. So let's hit this really quick. Um, here's the real way to understand this. It's so simple. And so many Catholics get this wrong. That doesn't mean the church teaches it this way. It doesn't. What the Catholic Church believes is what I'm going to tell you right now. And a lot of Catholics, unfortunately, don't teach this in their own lives very well. Here's the point. Did God save the Jews before or after he gave them a law? Before. That was another great mumbling. I love it. Most of you didn't say anything, sinners. <laughs> so, in the Exodus story, which is the the key story for the New Testament, God, right? That the Jews are saved in Exodus twelve is the Passover. Exodus fourteen is the Red Sea. The Law, as we've been talking about tonight, God gives the Jews a Law in Exodus twenty. St. Paul's letters, not 100%, but pretty close, they follow this paradigm. Paul's letters start usually with, here's what Jesus Christ did for you because he loved you before time began. Romans 5 8, one of my favorite verses. Um, Paul's talking about the best human being. If you could meet the best human being ever, they might die for like a good friend. In Romans 5.8, St. Paul says, But God shows forth his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love comes before the law. The problem that most Catholics have, what most Catholics do, even though the church doesn't teach this, is most Catholics start here. Right, And it's amazing you all are here. I love that you came to RCIA. My guess is a lot of you thought, oh my gosh, Catholics. They got a lot of rules. The problem with Protestants is they're very good at this. They start with love. They're very good at that. They never get here. And of course, that's a broad overstatement generalization. I know that's not totally true, but neither is the first one. Okay. So if you understand this, what we're going to get to next, I'm so pumped for this. Oh, my gosh. We're going to fight. It's going to be awesome. Um, if you start to understand this, you will understand everything it means to be a Catholic. So the last question, and then we'll take maybe a two-minute break, and we'll jump to sacraments. So the typical Protestant question is this. Have you been saved? Right? Um, so here's my here's the way I respond to that. If I'm actually thinking, a lot of times I'm really bad at this. Patrick and I talk about this on the podcast, where people be like FB, if you like, you know, respond to this question, and I just give it the totally wrong answer. But anyway, when I'm thinking right, here's the here's the answer from the Catholic perspective. So Exodus 12 is the Passover. The Jews are slaves in Egypt, slaves. Uh, in Exodus. Um, So in Exodus 12, they sacrifice the Passover lamb. The the Egyptians let them go. In chapter 14, is the Red Sea. Um, And in 15, they're on the other side of the Red Sea. So let's just say at that moment in history, if you went up to Moses, he's gone through the Red Sea. The Egyptians have drowned in the Red Sea. And you ask Moses that question. He said, Moses... Have you been saved? Are you saved? No. What do you think Moses would say? Sure. Okay. By the way, this is a trick question. <laughs> Any other takers? No, because <laughs> they're still like separate than on. Good. So it's a both and. I don't need to draw it because I don't want to embarrass you guys by my skills. Um, if Moses, right, if you're on the other side and you say, hey, Moses, did God save you? Of course he saved me. We were slaves. right? We were slaves. God just performed these incredible miracles as the, no one in the world has ever seen anything like it. And my enemies who were making me a slave are dead at the bottom of the sea. Where's Moses in Exodus 15? Where is he? He's in a desert. Where is he going? For 40 years he'll be in that desert on his way to the promised land. That's the Catholic answer. And then we're gonna we're gonna start now with sacraments. That's the Catholic answer to justification. I'm gonna draw it now. No. Um, So you have the Red Sea here, right? It's a perfect drawing to scale. Here's Egypt. Right, here's Israel. It's up here. They cross over. And the Catholic response to this, and this, again, this might sound, you might be like, man, F.B., you've been working on this one. This is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. You were saved. Jesus did die on the cross for you. Before you could do anything, the Protestant mistake is this is the promised land and the the problem is to think that you're already there. And in 1 Corinthians 10, St. Paul tells us if you are not faithful in the desert, you will never enter the (laughs) that's the Catholic understanding of justification is that we're right here in our life yes God saved me I couldn't do anything about it didn't make it happen he loved me before I could do anything but that doesn't mean that I don't have to be faithful as I walk to the promised land what's our promised land? Heaven. heaven and you have to be faithful as you walk there two minute break you get nothing more because we got, we got to hit sacraments. Well, we'll do five. So, quick break. <laughs> <Such a zombie. laughs> I know. No one even has to ask. I <laughs> I have a question about confession. Yep. Because, uh, you can't you know, do that from there. Yeah. <laughs> waiting in front of them, right? Hey, ma'am. Rock, person, paper, <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors. I'm down. <laughs> um, Okay, so say someone breaks one of the Ten Commandments. Yep. If they go to confession, and again, looking at confession wrong, but if they go to confession, yep. will God forgive them? I know you can't say yes, they're going to go to heaven, but you see where my question yep. is. Yep. Any sin is forgivable. Every single one? Every single one is forgivable. Huh? But that's why Christ gave us a sign of confession. And so you can, the key is that even if you're not sure you can overcome it, like, like let's say if an alcoholic is like, oh my gosh, I just can't help getting drunk, and I don't know that I'm going to be better in the future, if they actually want to get better, that sin is always forgiven. The only, the only time is that a sin can be forgiven is if a person is like, yeah, don't really care. Okay. And we'll, when we get to confession, we'll talk. About it. Okay, cool. Because okay. I'm trying to think about like, really bad stuff. Like if someone killed a man, he didn't confess. So St. Thomas Aquinas says, and this is this is just what the New Testament says. But St. Thomas says one drop of Christ's blood, one drop, was enough to forgive all the sins of humanity for one time. Okay. I tell people that I had confession like, all the time. Because <laughs> people get so overwhelmed by the same thing. And I love telling them like. One drop is Hitler, Stalin, you name it, Judas, like, one drop. And so we, we, have, to, we have to try to change, but, but you don't have to be scared, though, in like, case we are seeing something else. So these questions are linked. So yes. I had thought you were going to go from justification to purgatory. Yes. When are you maybe going we should. to go to purgatory? We could try to hit it really quick, but it, maybe next week. Isn't that a big topic? It is. Going to uh, way, isn't that the fundamental question? Yes, on um, one way it's really simple, but we can totally hit it because I have actually a visual I like to bring for that class. So, why don't we touch on it and then we'll go more in depth next Okay. Because I want to. Sh- I love showing people the visual. Family. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. if That's actually like a who else a bad thing to say or no. joke about? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. 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 Right, right. And it's not like anything bad, but say, or yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> weird. For me, it's was like, But I still I know. Yeah. I I was like, this is I'm <laughs> Maybe require <laughs> like like that we need. Because we are actually at the reception. And we came to the reception. <laughs> Alright, we ready folks? We are getting closer to um to Lent and all these things. Um can I have a quick question? And I, I can't obviously ask people online, but just for those of you who are here tonight, how many of you are going to Mass, and it's okay if you're not, but how many of you are going to Mass on Sundays? Oh. <laughs> okay. We want to start offering what we call breaking open the Word. And what that is, is after the homily, the RCIA usually comes down here, and they talk about the scriptures of the day, about the homily, or just other things. And it's just one more opportunity to kind of dig deeper and ask questions before you enter the church. Um, so there's more information on that coming. We, we still have to pick a mass for that. Well, it will be at the same mass? If you can't make that mass, it's okay. We'll work with you. Um, we prefer it, but we understand. Okay, really quick, we've got a question about purgatory. So purgatory is about this. Um, in the New Testament, um, there's a big, there's a simple distinction. Uh, it's in the Old Testament too. So tonight we've been asking the question about salvation. How does one, how is one saved? How does one go to heaven? Um, it's very related to the question of Sanctification. It's not the same thing, but they're very related. Um, And we're going to go more in-depth on this because I love talking. That sounds so weird to say. I love talking about purgatory. (laughs) I love it. But I do (laughs) because I'm weird. Um, But sanctification comes from the word holiness. Sanctus in Latin means holiness. Um, And so like in Hebrews, I think it's in Hebrews 13, Hebrews talks about how there is a holiness that if a person does not have, they cannot see the Lord. And we talked about this briefly when we talked about Mary's um, immaculate conception. And the basic biblical premise is this, and I think I used this before, but I'm just going to use it again. C.S. Lewis says, if you went to a very formal dinner party, this happened one time with my friend Father John Nepple and I. We are in Minnesota. A friend of ours was named A bishop and there was a reception the night before, just a dinner for close friends and family. And we got invited, and we went, and there were like five of us priests from Denver who knew Bishop Andrew Cousins now. So we walked into this hotel, and Father John realizes he's the only one who doesn't have a suit jacket. And he's in like Birkenstocks, which that's just kind of how we roll. And Father John looks at me and goes, Larkin! Lose your suit coat. And me being the good, generous friend I am, I was like, hell no. (laughs) Um, But C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if you went to a really formal party and everyone was dressed formally and you showed up really grungy and sweaty and dirty, you would want to be cleansed and you would want to feel like everyone else. The Bible is actually stronger than this. The Bible says... To be in God's presence, you have to be sanctified. You have to be. You can't just be forgiven. You have to be sanctified. You have to be holy, to be in God's presence. Again, a couple quick examples of this, right? Um, Exodus 3, the reason Adam and Eve can no longer stay in the garden is because they've committed sin, and that's where God's presence is. The high priest can only enter the temple after he sacrifices. He has to purify himself. He offers a bowl for the sins of Israel and a lamb for his own sins. Only then is he allowed to enter the sanctuary. Before you enter the temple as a commoner, you had to go through, I, I always get the Hebrew word wrong, but it's like a, a mikvah. It's where we get baptism. You had to go through a purification to be in God's presence. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, remember the burning coal? To be in God's presence, you have to to be purified. Hebrews 13 says the same thing. Revelation 21 says that nothing unclean can enter God's holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem. All over the place. What what purgatory is? Purgatory is related to the word to purify. And all it means is that you don't have a second chance at salvation. That's one of the questions people oftentimes have. Is this kind of a second chance? No, it's not. Everyone the Catholic Church teaches, everyone who goes to purgatory knows they are going to heaven. They are saved. They will dwell in heaven for all of eternity. But to enter heaven, you have to, you have to be purified. Um, so we're going to talk next week, if I remember, which I will. Patrick, help you remember next week. Well, you can't remember next week. Um, but next week we'll talk about this. And I'm going to talk about some images that are really helpful around this. There's a lot of theories about how this works. I think the most interesting one comes from Pope Benedict XVI. And what he says is all over Scripture, God is called an all-consuming fire. All over Scripture. And what fire does, right, is it turns things into itself you encounter fire, right, 1 Corinthians 3 is a passage that has a lot of echoes of this. But anyway, um, what happens is what what Pope Benedict says is he says maybe, he's speculating, he's not saying I know this. He's just saying this is an interesting thought. And what he says in his book on eschatology is he says, what if heaven, hell, and purgatory are all actually the same thing? What if all three of those things are God? Psalm 68 has hints of this, and it just makes sense to me. And here's what he's getting at, is that if God is the perfect fire of love, if you are someone who has your entire life chosen hatred and refused to love others, you experience God as painful. If you're someone who loves God, who has chosen love in your life, but you're not there yet, which is I imagine most of us, you experience him as a purif- purifying fire. Once you're purified, you experience God as perfect. That's not the Catholic teaching, that's a theory. But what I love about this, the basic all the Catholic teaching says is you have to be perfect to be in God's presence. It's kind of like the Trinity. The Trinity, the word Trinity is never used in the New Testament, not a single time. But the concept's there, all over the place. Purgatory is just like that. The word's never used in the New Testament. The concept is there everywhere. And what however that process happens, what the Catholic Church believes. Is it before you enter God's presence you have to be purified? You have to be made whole? Okay, we'll talk more about that next week, but let's hit sacraments. Okay. If you have a Bible with you, if you have one, always bring it, but if not, that's okay too. Um, We might help you out with that. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 is where I want to turn really quick. And if we had more time, we would talk about how this makes sense in the context of the letter and what St. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about, and why this, this is central to his letter, but um, this is what you get. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. St. Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, really quick. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. What is the cloud and what is the sea? What is he talking about? this is that part where you answer remember good yeah so in exodus the way the Jews make their way through the wilderness is by day there's a pillar of cloud right and um, it guides them the the later the rabbis will refer to that cloud as a cloud of God's presence the same presence that fills the temple in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon dedicates it. Um, Same cloud that falls on Mary, uh, when in Luke chapter 1, uh, it's Luke 9, it's transfiguration, blah, 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 blah. It's God's presence. And then St. Paul says, and they were all in the sea. What sea is that? The Red Sea. Sea, right? And he's going to make that clear here. Um, All our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same supernatural food, and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things are warnings for us not to desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. When were they idolaters? The golden calf. And at the next verse he quotes from Exodus 32. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance which is from Exodus 32. We must not indulge in immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell on a single day. Okay, we go on and on. Um, We will go more in-depth to this passage. I encourage you, read that. Read that passage, that whole chapter. Um, So here's here's where we're going to get to. So to, to be a Christian is to go through the Exodus. The New Testament assumes that you know the Exodus story on almost every page of the New Testament. So, a couple of examples of this. So, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. What does he do after he's baptized? He goes into the wilderness. How long does he go to the wilderness for? 40 days and 40 nights, right? One of those like, Bible numbers, you're like, it's got to be 7, 12, or 40. Um 40 days in the wilderness. He neither eats nor drinks. That that only happens two other times in the Bible where someone can fast for 40 days. I do not recommend you try it. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Um, what are the other two times does someone fast for 40 days and 40 nights? Moses does when he receives the Ten Commandments and... Jesus, but there's someone before him. someone, Another one besides him. It's a prophet. Elijah. Who is it? Elijah, Elijah that's right. Um, both of them fast 40 days and 40 nights. Both of them at Mount Sinai. Both of them do that. So here's a cool thing. So Jesus... He's baptized. St. Paul says that the Red Sea was a baptism. Did you catch that? Moses fasts 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus does the same thing right after his baptism. And what does Satan do with Jesus when he's in the wilderness? He tempts him, right? How many times? There's three temptations. Oh, this is so freaking cool. So, the three temptations, um, does anybody remember what they are? Okay, he's, he shows them all the kingdoms. That's the third one. Um, that's the first one. What's the second? Yep. Throw yourself, test God. And here's here's this is oh, I love this stuff. This is a good part of the class. I freaking love this stuff. Um, Jesus, so Satan tempted three times. Jesus responds all three times from Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy three times, and here's the thing: these temptations are the exact three temptations Israel faced in. The world. So they come out of so Exodus twelve, you get the Passover. You get the Red Sea in thirteen is kind of in between. They're leaving Egypt. In fourteen, you get the Red Sea. In chapter fifteen, anybody know what happens in Exodus fifteen? And it's the beginning of sixteen. They run out of food. and they grumble in the wilderness and they say, can God feed us? And they want to go back to Egypt. They say, in Egypt we had all the food we wanted. And in Exodus 16, what does God do? What does he give them? The first temptation is after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. My My nerdy friend Dr. Tim Gray says, biggest understatement in the Bible right? after 40 days of not eating he was hungry, thank you Matthew um, and Satan comes to him and he says if you are the son of God turn this stone into bread and Jesus, let me get my quotations right this is Matthew chapter 4 um, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That section of Deuteronomy, Moses, go back and read it. Go read Deuteronomy 8. Moses is talking about what the Jews were supposed to learn about manna. Second temptation, he says, uh, if you are the son of God, he takes him to the top of the temple, he says, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will send his angels to guard you, so that you shall not dash your foot against a stone. Right? Jesus responds, um, verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, which is Deuteronomy 6.16. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where does that happen in the Exodus story? Yes, it is. In Exodus 17, you get Meribah, where the Jews put God to the test. And in Deuteronomy 6, the the verse that Jesus quotes, again, if you go back and read the verse he quotes, it's Moses reflecting on Meribah. To be a Christian is to go through the Exodus. It's to learn the lessons of the desert. It's to be faithful when it's hard. You left Egypt behind. Egypt in the scriptures is a symbol of sin. You have to leave that behind, and you have to be faithful in the wilderness. Okay, the third one, right? Satan takes him to the top of a high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms on earth. And he says, all of these I will give you if what? If you bow down and worship me. And so Satan tempts Jesus to worship him falsely. When do the Jews worship someone falsely? At the golden calf. In Exodus 32. And so Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Verse 10, "Begone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him alone shall you serve. Right, which is Deuteronomy six thirteen. That's what it's talking about? Yeah. When was the fall of Satan? When was his fall? Yeah. Before time Before the start of the world. And so the Bible isn't really explicit about that. Both Jews and Catholics believe that before the foundation of the world. Um, the Catholic tradition is that Satan is the highest angel. What's the other name for Satan? Lucifer. Lucifer. What does Lucifer mean? Light bearer. Light bearer. And the Catholic tradition is that Lucifer is the highest, right? Because um, the person, like, if you have a good king, the person most tempted to overthrow the king is who? The second in command, right? Um, but Satan's in God's presence, and what the church believes is that he he actually like wouldn't be tempted by that originally, but what happens is that at a certain point God revealed that he would humble himself to serve lowly human beings. And that Satan's pride couldn't handle that. Okay, so all that is that's just one example. One more, we could, I could talk, there's so many of these, it's crazy. But, one more example is in uh, Luke chapter 9, you get the transfiguration. Luke 9, Jesus goes up a mountain, he takes with him who? John. It's, it's the three apostles he always takes with him. Peter, James, and John. Okay. He goes up a mountain, he takes... Three apostles. And as he's there, he's transfigured. He starts to radiate light. Right? And a cloud comes over them, and the Father speaks. Okay. Um, I'm just going to, without asking too many questions, this is a fulfillment of everything Moses was. Moses, in Exodus 33, goes up on top of Mount Sinai. Guess, guess how many people he takes with him? Yep. He takes three of his close followers. Does anybody know their names? Aaron. Um, yep, Aaron's one of them. These are just fun names that I'm kind of being a dork, but I just. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Your next child's name. <laughs> he takes three up on top of the mountain, and guess what happens? Moses. There's a cloud that descends on Mount Sinai. And when he comes down, his face is transfigured. It radiates light. When Jesus goes up on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, who else is there besides the three apostles? Moses Moses and Elijah. And in Luke 9, we're told... That what they talk about while they're there is they talk about the exodus that Jesus was to accomplish in Jerusalem. I go on and on, on and on and on. At Mass and in the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, "Behold, behold the Lamb of God." which is a reference to the Passover lamb, as we're going to see very, very quickly. It's a reference to the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. What night did Jesus institute the Last Supper? The night of Passover. Jesus has how many apostles? He's 12 apostles. He's got three in his inner circle. Guess what Moses had? Moses had 12 leaders, from one from each of the 12 tribes. And then Jesus has 70 disciples. Guess how many leaders underneath the 12 Moses had? Seven. 70. And guess what? He had an inner circle of three. Jesus is the new Moses. He is the one who saves us from slavery. Right? He is the one who brings us to teach us how to worship God. He is the one that leads us to the promised land. He's the new Moses. Okay, here's everything it means to be a Christian. Don't you love my ridiculous statements? Um, so, all of this is happening, and this is setting us up for sacraments, believe it or not. Um, so, in the Exodus, in the New Testament, so in the Exodus, the Jews are in slavery, right? what is what is in the New Testament there's something that corresponds by the way what I'm doing right now is called typology it's like a foreshadowing this is like sometimes people are like man Father Brian you really came up with a great paradigm this is how every church father of the ancient church taught this this is how the Catholic church understands scripture and has from the very beginning this is not me this is not my talents this is what the church teaches okay what's the slavery in the New Testament sin so both St. Paul um, and Jesus teach that sin makes you a slave isn't that obvious? sin makes you a slave the more you give in to a sin for men, for us, the, the usual example for us it's easiest is lust guys, you know women can struggle with that too but guys tend to more Guys, we all know, every one of us in this room, if you give in to your lust, it will make you a slave. Ladies, I don't know what it is for you. Hair, hair products or something. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I think, I think women sometimes can me jealousy or vanity. Um, but the point is, right, any one of the sins. If you're, if you're someone who struggles with anger, you give into your anger enough, you will not control your anger. Your anger will make you a slave. Sin so makes you a slave. Okay, in the exit of the story, there's a big bad guy. Who's the big bad guy who holds God's people in slavery? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people go. Um, who's the big bad guy in the New Testament who holds you and I in slavery? Satan, Satan right? Okay, in the Old Testament, we've just done this all, so you should know all these answers. God's people escape from Egypt. God redeems them. Actually, before that, God sends a redeemer. And in fact, in Exodus, um, he's referred to as the Goel, which means a kinsman redeemer. Who is the redeemer in Exodus? Moses. Moses. Now, I always say, if you get this next answer wrong... (laughs) I love you very much, but you can't be Catholic. Okay? (laughs) Who is the Redeemer in the New Testament? Mary. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yeah. So Jesus is the new Moses. He's the Redeemer. He's the one who leads us out of slavery through baptism, and he leads us to the Promised Land. Okay. The Jews had to get out of Egypt. Egypt. How did they get out? There's two ways they they escaped Egypt. What are the two ways? Okay, the Red Sea is the second answer. What was the first? Passover. Then you could say the ten plagues, but Passover is the last of the plagues. Okay? So, here's what the early church fathers say. Man, I'm always like, maybe we should start with this class. It's like my favorite class. I love this. Um, In the New Testament, right, um, Jesus, so in 1 Corinthians 5, St. Paul says, Jesus, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the leaven of insincerity, but with the unleavened bread of truth. So Jesus is our Passover. Here's what the early truth says. In the Passover, what happened is, in the evening time, and John's gospel is explicit about this. We're going to go through this. Like, when we do Eucharist, do not miss that class. It will blow your freaking mind. It is the most powerful thing ever. Um, but in the Passover, you take a lamb, you slaughter it in the evening. St. John makes painstaking detailed remarks to let us see that Jesus was sacrificed in the evening. In Exodus, four, or in Exodus 12, Moses tells us that not a bone of the Passover lamb is to be broken. In Exodus 19, St. John makes a big deal that not a single bone of Christ was broken on the cross. Because he is our Passover Then what you do, you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorpost of your house. Which, by the way, is an explicit thing that puts you at risk. That was an act of faith that God was going to show up. You take the blood of the lamb, you put it on your doorposts, and the reason it's called Passover is because the angel of death passes through Egypt that night, and if it sees the blood of the lamb on your house, death passes over. The New Testament, and especially the early Christians whose writings we have, mostly bishops of the early Catholic Church, they say on the cross... They see the cross beams much like a doorpost. And they say the true Passover, the true Lamb of God, on the cross shed his blood so that eternal death would pass over you. So cool. Okay. Then they have to escape through the Red Sea. What's the Red Sea for us as Christians? So Passover, I'm just going to say Jesus for now, but we'll get to why it's also the Eucharist. Um, we get to the class on Eucharist. Um, so they passed the Red Sea, right? And then they, uh, they passed the Red Sea. We've already done this tonight. How did they survive in the wilderness? Manna, right? God rains down bread from heaven us as Christians, how do we survive our our walk of the Christian life after we've been baptized? The Eucharist, which is the true bread from heaven, as Jesus says in John chapter 6. The Jews complain, they say, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. And Jesus says, the true bread that came down from heaven is not such as your fathers ate. He says, the true bread from heaven is that which comes down and gives life to the world. He goes on and on. In John six fifty three, Jesus says, um, He says, the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Our bread and our journey, it's really hard to be a Christian, by the way. Anyone who's ever really tried, it's really hard. You can't do it on your own. You need God to sustain you in the wilderness. Okay, so there's manna, there's Eucharist. Um, Where are the Jews? Where are they going? Yep, big P. L. Okay, what's our promised land? How long are the Jews in the wilderness? Forty years is right. Um. What is that for us? Not quite eternity. How long before we enter the promised land? Lifetime, yeah. Or purgatory, yeah. You got me. Um. Oh. If you understand this, you understand what the Catholic Church thinks about what it means to be a Christian. You couldn't do anything to earn any of this. It's hard to be a Christian. God will sustain you. But you have to be faithful in the wilderness. Sacraments. The manna here is going to stand for most of the sacraments. Um, especially the Eucharist, of course. The Red Sea. Again, Paul says his baptism. Um, okay, last thing. we got like two minutes. But this will set us up for next week. Next week, I'll put that up again. If you didn't catch all that, I'll put it up. We'll walk through that a couple of times because it's so important. Um, With the sheet I gave you, if you want to understand sacraments, what I hope you're gently being led through as we go through RCIA is God doesn't just want your good behavior. He doesn't just want you to believe in him course he wants both those things. He wants something so much more. God wants to dwell inside of you. And I was in a rush tonight. I could pull out 50 quotes in the New Testament that say that, but I think I just did like two, maybe three. So Romans 8, 9-10. First quote. You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. Here's what I'm going to get at right now. Uh, Two things. Every one of the seven sacraments, what it does is it makes it so the cross is not just something that happened. Every sacrament inserts us into the cross. And what it does is it makes the cross and Jesus specifically live inside of us. Christianity is not a moral system. It's not a philosophical system. Christianity is God living inside of you. that's what the sacraments do. Okay, second line. St. Paul, very famous... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Next week, if you remember, try to bring your sheets back because we'll obviously still be working off this. Um, I was going to say one more thing. I don't know if I can remember. Um, Oh, maybe we'll do it this. So the pillars of the catechism, I'm always behind, shocker. So the way that the, the catechism of the Catholic Church has four pillars, four main sections. You could think of them as big chapters. The first pillar is the creed. And the creed is about what God did for you about the history of the church is what we believe. It's who God is, and it's what he's done in history. The second pillar is the sacraments. Don't despair. I know we're we're just starting pillar two, and you're like... (laughs) The sacraments, what it does, the sacraments move it from being something that happened in the past. And there's quotes on your sheet about this. Go home and read them. Is that the mystery of the redemption of Jesus Christ is something that is present throughout history because Jesus is God. And the sacraments put you on the playing field. This isn't something that I believe happened in the past. It's not just that I believe Jesus is God and he loves me from heaven. It's that when, and we're going to talk about this, it's that when I was baptized, I was baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 6. It's that the sacraments put us into the life of Christ. They insert us into him and him into us. Um, The third pillar is your moral life. Because when you're walking through the desert, you're a free, responsible adult. And just like your children that you've already had or will have, when you love your children, what you want for them is to be mature, responsible, and wise. Not to be spoiled brass that it doesn't matter what they do. And so God, and by the way, it comes third because we believe that God gives us His Holy Spirit through the sacraments, so that we can be transformed to live the moral life. Right? This, is where, where, when Catholics put this first, or any Christians do, drives me freaking crazy. And if you do that to your kids, I don't know how, but I will find out, and I will beat the crap out of you. <laughs> right? <laughs> because it doesn't start here; it starts here. And then finally we get to prayer which sustains us on the way. Okay. We have announcements stuff. Our school gala is this Saturday. You probably, if you're in this room, don't have kids in our school. Um, Patrick has been working his tail off for the last year. Um, so if you can support our school, that's a great work. Helps kids to love God. Um, yeah, please. It's a big deal. So let's go to our website, it's virtual, it's virtual on its a way to help Catholic kids to go to school. Um, so that's Saturday night lordsdenver.org. denverorg Do you want to say anything else about that? Uh pre-show starts at 6. Actually it's only an hour long, so it's from 6.30 to 7.30. Live auction. Um, we have two raffles that are actually really cool, you can, even if you don't have kids in the school or kids in diapers. Um, $100 to give a kid a three-year tuition, and then $50 per raffle ticket for a year's supply of Hello Bello diapers. And if you win, you can give those whoever you might know, that, that would apply for it, like Father Brian, and... I'm hanging on to him. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, we'll be done at 7.30, so it should be quick and relatively painless, depending on a speech, and then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <there you go. laughs> <okay. Amen>. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, we're ready Amen. All right, thank you guys, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.